Hi there. I am so excited to invite you to attend our fourth annual free virtual special education and advocacy conference. We are hosting it here at Ashley Barlow Company in partnership with Rebecca Poe Teaching. And we are so excited for a few new things at this year's conference. The first new thing is that we have not just one, but two different tracks for attendance. For the first time ever, we have created a track that is specific for school staff and teachers. We also still have that traditional track that we intend to be really great for parents and caregivers in the IEP arena. So yes, we have a teacher track and a parent track. On that teacher track, you are going to learn about things like easier data collection, gestalt language processing, behavior reading, and other super hot topics in special education practice, as well as advocacy. On the teacher and caregiver track, you're going to learn about stress management for caregivers using adaptive books, something that I have really kind of um, dove into here at my own house, inclusion advocacy, advocacy strategies, and so, so much more. That free ticket will give you one pass, one access to one presentation per hour on the track that you choose, either that teacher track or the parent track. Of course, if you are not available on January 19th or January 20th when the conference is taking place, you can buy tickets to access the conference on demand. And those tickets, of course, are available at our website, ashleybarlowco.com backslash conference slash 2024. Check out the website for more information about ticketing. This year, we also have something super exciting planned. We have decided to make this a two-day event. When I partnered with Rebecca Poe Teaching, I told her that I really feel like school districts, disability organizations, and other community organizations need to start providing trainings that are accessible to teachers, related service providers, administrators, parents and caregivers, and other community members that are interested in IEP support. What if we all attended the same training? What if we all learned information about special education practice, curriculum, how to read evaluations, that kind of stuff, about special education advocacy, how we can collaborate more, how we can work together, and even about special education laws. What if we all attended those presentations and we workshopped them together? So together with Rebecca Poteaching, I have created the Empowered Workshop Series, and we are excited to bring it to your organization or school in 2024 and beyond. If you are interested in having Rebecca and I bring a workshop to you, you can see a preview of the Empowered Workshops on January 19th, the Friday before our main conference programming. For more information about that, either send me a DM or check out the website, again, ashleybarlowco.com backslash conference dash 2024. We hope to see you January 19th and or January 20th and can't wait to connect with you. Hi everyone, welcome to the Ashley Barlow Company Podcast. I'm Ashley Barlow, your host. If you are a parent, 
a teacher or someone who works at a school, or you're a community member, a volunteer or a staff member at an organization that supports people with special education plans, a coach, a tutor, or even a grandparent, you're in the right place. Sit back with an ice cold glass of lemonade, put on your walking shoes and grab some headphones, roll down the windows and cruise. Ready, set, go. Educate, advocate, collaborate. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Special Education Advocacy with Ashley Barlow. I'm Ashley Barlow and I'm so happy you're here. Boy, do we ever have a great episode today. Today I am welcoming Dr. David Kuhn, who is a colleague of Salandi Forte's. You might have heard Salandi back a couple episodes ago when she and I talked about behavior. Dr. Kuhn and I are going to talk today about functional behavioral assessments. And one of the best things that I think this episode delivers is a very, very nuanced, but extremely important piece to taking that ABC data in the FBA. I hope you'll stay tuned for that tip, which is so important and something that I use time and time again in my legal practice. I want to tell you about Dr. Kuhn before we hop over to today's episode. Man, is he ever a smarty pants and his experience speaks for itself. I'm going to actually read you his resume because it's so, so impressive. And I'm so happy that he has decided to join us for this episode. Dr. David Kuhn is the director of the Advanced Intervention Program at Milestones Behavioral Services. He earned his PhD in clinical psychology from Louisiana State University, specializing in intellectual and developmental disabilities. David is a licensed psychologist in New York and Connecticut and a licensed behavior analyst in Connecticut and a doctoral level board certified behavior analyst. Prior to joining Milestones, David was the clinical director of the Center for Autism and the Developing Brain at New York Presbyterian Hospital, co-director of the Behavioral Psychology Program at Westchester Institute of Human Development, and senior behavior analyst on the Neurobehavioral Unit at the Kennedy Krieger Institute in Baltimore. He has held faculty appointments at Columbia University Medical College, Weill Cornell Medical College, Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, New York Medical College, the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, Queens College, and the University of Massachusetts uh, in Lowell. From 2006 to 2007, David served as president of the Maryland Association of Behavioral Analysts. He has been a member of the editorial board for the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis since 2006, and he has co-authored over 20 peer-reviewed articles and book chapters. His clinical and research interest focuses on the application and adaptation of principles of, of applied behavior analysis towards skill acquisition and behavior reduction among individuals diagnosed with autism or other intellectual and developmental disabilities. He is extremely qualified to provide us information in today's podcast. I hope you enjoy. Let's hop over to today's episode. Hi, David. Thank you so much for joining me. Hi. Uh, thank you for having me. It's, uh, 
I'm really looking forward to hopping into today's conversation as you and I discussed just now. It seems as though my audience gets really excited to learn everything they can learn about behavior and FBAs and supporting their children behaviorally in school. So I'm really grateful to have connected with you. Why don't we start off by just having you introduce yourself to my audience. Tell us what you do um, and your path to get there. Oh, okay. Um, so my name is David Kuhn. I am a uh, uh, licensed clinical psychologist and also a doctoral level board certified behavior analyst. Um, I work at Milestones Behavioral Services in Connecticut, where I'm the director of our advanced intervention program, uh, which is a program geared towards working with students with more significant behavioral challenges, uh, both in the school program as well as within an outpatient. Um, what kind of got me here? Uh, it, it's, it's been a journey, but it's been all kind of along the same path. Um, after I, uh, I graduated from college with a bachelor's in behavioral biology with initial intentions of pursuing medicine. Um, but uh, I took a year off and tried to figure out what I was going to do. Uh, and I kind of got into some of the stuff I'd been doing um, I guess on the weekends when I was in high school and over the summers in college where I worked for an organization that provided uh, therapeutic recreation for individuals with developmental disabilities, uh, where I was a Special Olympics coach and, and, and did a lot of that. Um, and uh, my pre-med advisor was like, well, why are you going to med school? Why don't you pursue a field where you're working with this population and there's all different avenues. Um, so I subsequently applied for a position at uh, this called Kennedy Krieger Institute in uh, Baltimore, Maryland, um, working on an inpatient unit called the neurobehavioral unit that serves uh, adolescents uh, and adults uh, with developmental disabilities who display severe problem behaviors, you know, life threatening uh, either towards themselves or others. Um, Worked there, uh, had an amazing experience, worked with some of the leaders in the field. Uh, it was great timing for me because uh, the field wasn't just emerging, but it was it's not where it is today. Um, then went, uh, worked there for about four years um, uh, and met my future wife there doing the same thing. And uh, then uh, we both ventured down to Louisiana State University uh, to get our doctorates. Um, in psychology, um, and I worked with uh, someone, and the, the program was focused on uh, intellectual and developmental disabilities. I then circled back for my internship back to Kennedy, um, uh, Kennedy Krieger, and I stayed there and then uh, stayed on as faculty there for uh, five or so years. Um, then my travels took me back, back up to New York, where I'm from. Um, and uh, my wife and I opened up an outpatient program at a uh, institute for individuals with developmental disabilities. Uh, it was an outpatient program serving kids and adolescents and adults with severe problem behavior. Uh, and then I was there for several years. And then I uh, ventured over to uh, a project that was a uh, collaboration between um, Weill Cornell uh, Medical School, uh, Columbia School of Medicine, and New York Presbyterian called the uh, Center for Autism and the Developing Brain, um, where I served as the clinical director uh, for several years. And then one thing led to another, and then I ended up at Milestones. So <laughs> find more information than you wanted, 
that's kind of what got me to where I am. I love it. Well, you have been at several prestigious um, universities and organizations um, and companies, and um, certainly all of that experience in education has yielded the continued success. I have one question. Who did better in the PhD, you or your wife? Well, so we uh, arranged it so that we went into two separate programs. So <laughs> okay. Focused on developmental disabilities. She did school psychology. I did clinical. Okay, so now you're the dream team. You can collaborate. <laughs> that was smart. You're 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 even collectively smarter when you do it that way. <laughs> That's so neat. So, what led you as a high schooler? Um, or a college student to be involved in um, helping people with disabilities? Did you have some family connection or what was your connection? Uh, a friend of mine, uh, his brother had uh, Down syndrome. And uh, when we would you know, hang out together and his brother would be involved and, um, and I went home and I was just like, to my mom, I'm like, well, what does Chris do? Like when he's not doing these things and my mom reached out to his family. And you know, mind you, this was, I first got involved, it was in the early 80s, 83-ish. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there weren't a lot of uh, <clears throat> appropriate activities <clears throat> and certainly, you know, educational opportunities. Um, and so that family hooked me up with this organization called Northeast Westchester Special Recreation. Still in existence in, uh, in Running Strong in Valhalla, New York. Um, wow. But started work uh, volunteering there when I was 13 or 14 and then just continued. That's so cool. So that kind of leads into the next question that I had prepared. It was a nice segue that you that you set up there. Um, and that is, you know, in working like, um, like in um, organizations like you were involved with as a kid, um, and then also in your field now, you are working in organizations that are primarily geared to help people with disabilities. Um, and so, you know, a lot of us in the disability community are very pro-inclusion and um, pro-incorporation into everyday life, whether that's at school, it's in the community, wherever it is. But what I have realized as a parent um, very early on is that there's some balance between those inclusive opportunities that are also definitely necessary, but then also doing some things that are disability specific, and that's recreationally, that's therapeutically, developmentally, all of those things as well. So from your perspective as a professional, why is it so important for parents of children with disabilities to access um, resources that are specifically designed for children with disabilities, like what you offer at Milestones and, you know, clinics like what you <clears throat> did at Kennedy Krieger, et cetera. Yeah. Well, I think there's, uh, you know, a lot of benefits both for the individual as well as for the families. Um, from a family perspective, you've experienced this as well. It's a, it's a great way to connect with families who are experiencing, you know, the similar, similar challenges and joys that you're experiencing um, that you know other families may not be able to relate to in the same way um, but you know I, like you said I think inclusion is extremely important um, both for that individual you know to you know be around the general population and uh, you know not be um, you know removed from that and those same experiences but at the same time um, you know if we look at you know forming peer groups uh, and uh, you know, 
being able to perform at you know in, across different activities at levels similar to your peers, it's it's good to have those experiences as well, because you don't always want to have okay this student is getting these accommodations and everybody else is here and this one's getting these accommodations, which can also just end up being more isolating. So yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? That sometimes are isolating and sometimes it's more inclusive and you really don't know until you get into that setting. Um, thank goodness for professionals like you that have the special skill set and that also I love what you said about the communities that parents, you know, then become part of a community because you sit in the waiting room, you sit on the sidelines, you um, help your child alongside other parents that are doing the exact same thing. And, you know, some of my favorite friends are friends that I've met at opportunities just like that for my son. So um, that's awesome. Well, let's shift gears and, and kind of dive into the meat of the topic for today, and that is behavior. So we are going to talk about supporting children behaviorally at school and in the community as well. Um, and I think everybody knows that behavior a good behavior plan to get a good sense of behavior, we've got to start with that FBA. So if you could just take us through a, a definition of the FBA, what's the FBA to David Kuhn? Um, well, I will say also just kind of what you said, like in terms of a good behavior plan and needing a good FBA, that one of my biggest pet peeves is that people often conceptualize those as two separate documents or two separate things. Oh, we did the FBA, we found out this, oh, and then we did this behavior plan. When yes. the reality is the FBA needs to inform the behavior plan. So just like you said, in order to have a good plan, you need a really good FBA. Um, Thank you, so, uh, good point. An FBA is, or a functional behavioral assessment is really the process of understanding the, I'm too technical, but to understand the variables that are influencing um, the behavior of interest. <clears throat> and it could be problematic behavior, but it could be uh, appropriate behavior as well. But I guess for our purposes, it's more those challenging behaviors. But in terms of understanding those variables, it's both the variables that um, maybe, uh, set the occasion. So it's uh, what's going on in the environment at that time, um, whether there's instructions being delivered, whether it's a period of uh, low interaction or what have you, but also understand the variables that then maintain that behavior. So what is it that um, uh, an individual you know, gains or benefits from uh, by engaging in that behavior? And that benefit could be something kind of more tangible, like when I do this, I get you know, these good reactions or these you know, beneficial things, or it could be that when I do this, things that I don't like are taken away. Um, so it's, you know, at, a, at its simplest form, it's really trying to understand why behavior occurs uh, and it's in, in what context does it occur. The why behind the behavior. And, you know, I think um, getting to the function or the why of the behavior to me is so innate because I'm a why person. So I've always um, you know, it, particularly having Jack has kind of fed my why, like, oh, why are babies born um, with everything at midline? And then we have to teach them to deliberately reach away from midline. Why is his body doing that? Where is that in the brain? I love that kind of thing. So for me with behavior, that's very innate, but 
I think that's a concept that is not innate to a lot of people to figure out why the behavior is happening. So many people want to just layer on supports or layer on consequences and not address the cause of the behavior proactively and preemptively. Um, and that is obviously the solution so is to figure it like out. In other fields, like for medicine, you would say like, oh, don't just go to the doctor and say, here's an antibiotic. But it's, all right, let's find out why you're sick. And then I can prescribe a treatment that is specific to why you're sick. Like, it's, oh, you've got a broken bone. I'm going to put a cast on your arm. Yes. That yes. Out. Yeah, good point. But I have to say nowadays in Western medicine, which is, this is not a slam on Western medicine, but a doctor might find inflammation, you know, through doing blood work or something. And so the why is, oh, something hurts or I'm fatigued or whatever oh, well, your seg rate or something is really high. I don't know all that stuff, but you know, you have this blood work and so you've got inflammation. So I'm going to put you on an anti-inflammatory. And I, but what I want to know is why is the inflammation, why is that number high? Why is the seg rate high or the ANA high or whatever? And so I do think that this kind of idea of just fixing the behavior without getting to the function of it is systemic in other fields and medicine is a good totally. example of that that's it's totally treating. tangential to our conversation yeah no it's it's people are treating the symptoms like like, like again like your example with western medicine like they may be treating the symptoms hopefully they're finding the cause and answering the why but a lot of times within uh, the treatment of behavioral problems they're treating what we would call the symptoms but the topography of behavior like oh you're engaging in physical aggression this is the treatment for physical aggression Oh, it's self-injurious behavior. This is the treatment. So again, they're treating the what we might call it the symptom or the topography of the behavior, but not the underlying um, uh, variables that are influencing it. Right, and and that's when we need to get into that individualized piece of it. And so, um, as we're looking at the FBA, then what sorts of things do you think are necessary in an FBA? Let's talk about kind of the elements of a good FBA. Yeah, um, I would say, I mean, as I'm sure you've experienced, I mean, people do FBAs a whole bunch of different ways. And, and to be honest, I, I don't think there's just one FBA that is the most appropriate. Um, that said, I think there's a process within the FBA that people you know, should follow, which I think is, would be considered best practices. Um, and you know, it's, it's using information to go from one step to the other. And so what I mean by that is um, typically what I would start out doing is um, some type of uh, interview or questionnaire with a family uh, or other people that are very familiar with that individual and their behavior. And I prefer kind of more open-ended questionnaires as opposed to ones that are you know, you know, rated on a Likert scale or tell me yes or no. It's, you know, it gives the family uh, or the individual a chance to talk and describe what their experiences are. But I am looking for information mostly about what are they thinking about why the behavior occurs or what are the situations that the behavior occurs? Um, and, you know, where, and what are situations when the behaviors don't occur? When are they not seeing it? Um, and you know, personally, what I use that information to say, all right, so you know, the individual or the family member has identified that you know, when this uh, student is doing work in a tool or when I leave them alone, those are times that I'm more likely to see problem behavior. Um, 
those are the times that I want to go in and do what I call my descriptive assessments. We're starting to collect uh, ABC data, which stands for antecedent behavior consequence. So as a quick aside, like oftentimes when there's an FDA like in a school district or otherwise, and someone will say, oh, I'll go collect ABC data. And they'll just go in at random times. Like, oh, you know, I went in there, I collected data. Either I didn't see anything or I saw this, and then they'll base everything based on what they saw during that snapshot. Having the interview first can guide when it is you're going to go observe. So, okay, I know this uh, student does great, let's say, during meals and related services. So, you know what? I'm not going to schedule my observations during those times. Uh, but when they're doing math or group activities, those are problematic times that were identified. Those are the times I'm going to go in and do my uh, observations. And so maybe I'm not sitting there for five hours doing it, but I can only go in, I can go in for 20 minutes and get more important information. Um, yeah, that's huge. I mean, to, to actually listen in that interview part and not just do the questionnaire because it's something you can check off is really, really huge. And I've caught so many FBAs in my practice that have gotten sidetracked as a result of exactly that issue. You know, the parents say, well, I don't even know what they were looking at. And I don't know. And it's the same as any other evaluation. You know, they want to get academic testing done, but the child, um, you know, maybe the child takes Ritalin and we lose focus at one o'clock because that Ritalin's been uh, metabolized by the body and the test starts at one o'clock. So, you know, if they had talked to the parents before they did the academic testing, they would, or the classroom teacher, anybody, they would have known to start that test at 10 o'clock when we're at like the peak of Ritalin. Um, and so I think that that piece of it is super duper important and something that I see in practice all the time. So thank you for, um, for talking about that. Well, I mean, they, they know the individual best. Um, and, you know, I would say, you know, as you just hit on about kind of even time of day. So one thing I'll do is also make sure there's good data collection in place. Um, but if there is already in place or I've set it up, then just kind of looking at what I call a scatter plot of the data, when you're looking at you know, which behaviors and what time of day it's occurring, is you may see, I've got some examples, but I won't be able to pull them up right now, but um, you can see clear patterns sometimes. It's just like, okay, like you said, at one o'clock, the Ritalin's wearing off. So from they arrive till, you know, 115, we are never seeing problems, but after one, that's when you know everything you know falls apart. Is it because of the activities? Maybe, or is it because some other variable like the uh, medication wearing off? Um, so you really need to obviously consider all these pieces. Um, <laughs> right, it's so complicated. It it is, and well, I'll get off. I'll step onto my soapbox later, um, but. Uh, the other thing is, like, so we collect ABC data, and, uh, and that's definitely thrown around in many IEP meetings. Oh, we're going to collect ABC data. Uh, and really what that involves is you're going in and you're observing um, and uh, you're you know, taking notes about what's going on. And if you see a behavior that you're targeted, if you observe it occur, you're going to try and note what happened beforehand and then what changed in the environment as a result of that behavior. Um, with the idea that these are all related. The problem with ABC data in and of itself is it's correlational. I've observed this 
and then I, then the behavior occurred. It may have been something totally different that happened that occasioned that behavior, but what I saw is that, so I'm making that connection there. Uh, and same thing with the consequence. Um, it's still information and it may prove to be useful, but uh, that in and of itself is not sufficient information to show me that there's a causational relationship there. It doesn't really. prove causation, it just proves correlation. Completely. Yeah, they're related. So this happened and this happened, it's related, but it doesn't prove that this happened and therefore this other thing happened. Exactly. Yeah, um, so the antecedent, we have the antecedent, we have the behavior, we have the consequence, we have the A, the B, and the C, but we haven't proved just by writing that down that the A causes the C. Exactly, yep. So why, why is that? Well, because um, also sometimes, the, like when we talk about that behavior is maintained by whatever it is, maintained by attention or maintained by access to preferred things or maintained by escape from instruction. Um, the reality is those things don't always follow the behavior. So it's more likely that there's a history of it or it happens intermittently, but it's enough that it keeps the behavior maintaining. Just kind of like with the slot machines. You don't get money back every time, but you get back a little here and there, but that keeps you going. So <laughs> for the most part, when I'm collecting ABC data, I pay little attention to the consequence because I, I understand that it's quite likely that the consequence that might be maintained that behavior is not actually going to appear. The individual is engaging the behavior, but if it was attention, it still may get ignored in that situation, but it doesn't mean it wasn't, it's not maintained by attention. Or mm -hmm. maybe the individual didn't give them their iPad in that instance, but it's happened enough times before that it still gets them going to engage in that behavior. But that gives me information about, okay, I've got uh, an understanding of this is when it's likely to happen. These, this is what's going on in the environment. Um, and these are possible consequences. For me, I would say, as a good behavior analyst, understanding, wanting to understand the, the why and the causational piece, I want to test that out. I want to test out my hypotheses. I want to create the hypotheses uh, based on this kind of uh, buildup of information from the interview through the ABC, and then say, all right, it looks to me like when this student uh, is engaging, uh, is participating in a group activity, for example, they're likely to you know, act out or you know, begin screaming um, to get attention from others. So here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna set up a situation where uh, they're engaging in a group activity and uh, maybe you know, from the working with some of the other teachers, if behavior occurs, what I want you to do is provide attention where I'm controlling the antecedent and I'm controlling the consequence. Yes. Yeah, so I remember, this is what I think is so cool about, um, about manipulating that consequence, testing out different consequences. I remember when I first read that and I was like, aha, that's why we take the data. Because just taking the data, I think, you know, to me, like in my words, what you just described is, people are much more dynamic than antecedent behavior consequence. We're really beautifully complicated. And you just gave wonderful examples of how we can be complicated and multiple different factors 
can influence the behavior on one particular occasion. So the data, if we take enough of it, will give us a good idea, but we've got to figure out now, okay, how do we fix it? And we have to test that out. You, I mean, there's a science to it. So I love this idea of testing out the consequence. Mm -hmm. um, okay, tell us more about that. This is the part I'm so excited about. So, um, and I would echo that. That's, the, that's what I love about you know, this, this field and this, the science of it is you're, you're testing your hypothesis testing um, and you get a, you prove your hypothesis and sometimes you don't prove it. Um, and one of the keys in doing it is you know, you've got your hypothesis and you want to test it out. So let's say it's, you know, I learned that whenever um, I deliver, uh, or I'm testing out when I deliver instructions to student A, if they engage in prompt behavior, um, uh, I'm going to remove the demands and give them a break uh, to see whether or not they will continue to engage in behavior in order to get out of the work. Now, that gives me good information that, oh yeah, I'm seeing prompt behavior, but what I'm not seeing is um, what am I comparing that to? So I, I, I don't want to just say, yep, prompt behavior occurs in this situation, but I have to be able to show that when the um, that same consequence or reinforcer is provided like for free, that the behavior doesn't occur. So maybe a better example would be um, I've got a, you know, a student who uh, I'm testing out, okay, when they're in a situation where I'm busy, you know, um, uh, or I'm, let's say I'm talking to a colleague. So if I'm talking to a colleague, I'm you know, diverting my attention to them and away from the student. And my test condition is if they engage in problem behavior, I'm gonna turn my attention back to them. Oh, you know, what is it that you need? You know, oh, don't, you know, you shouldn't be throwing those things, what have you. Um, and I'd be looking to see if problem behavior occurred in that situation. But I'd wanna compare that to a situation where I'm giving that attention in the absence of problem behavior. So instead of my colleague may still be there, but all of our attention is directed to the student. Um, and what we would hope to see if there's a functional relationship there is that in my control condition, you know, the student seems to be enjoying the attention and we're seeing zero levels of problem behavior. But when attention only is delivered following an occurrence of problem behavior, we're gonna see more higher levels or stable levels. Um, and when I make those two comparisons, uh, then I can say with greater confidence about a causational relationship and thus the function of the behavior. Um, That's what's so helpful because then you as the expert in behavior can go to the school team and say, I have confidence. I can say with a reasonable degree of certainty that this is gonna work. And it's not the teachers just trying to like willy nilly through it, which really then just continues to look like taking ABC data. They never get any answers. That's what I feel like when I sit in these things is that it looks like the teachers just think that they have to keep taking data and it's gonna keep, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And if we've got a behaviorist that comes in and says, oh no, okay, now do this because I think it's, I think this is what's causing it. Let's play around with that idea. Then you can prove it. And then you can say, okay, here's how we fix that. Because obviously we can't give everybody a bunch of attention when two adults are in the room. We can't reduce all the demands um, in order to reduce the behavior because we the demands help you learn. <laughs> so we've got to then get the plan in place 
but the behaviorist has the plan in mind with that science behind them. That's the key, right? Completely. And um, again, I'm saying a good behavior analyst, but as a behavior analyst, one of the things that, that we do or should be doing is graphing those data. So if I'm making that comparison of my test condition and my control condition, and then I can you know, do repetitions of it, and then I can show you, I'm like, look, this is what I did. You can look for yourself and see, when I did these things, this is what happened. And when I did these things, the behavior went away. Um, and then it's okay, I can use that information. So now I know that, and, and oftentimes you then have to kind of go in and, and go to kind of a more micro level. So maybe it's not just attention, it's attention on a certain topic, or it's physical attention, or it's a combination of physical and verbal attention. Uh, or something qualitative, um, but then it's okay. Yep, now I want to go to treatment, um, and I want to use that information to say, okay, I know this individual in situations where attention is not seemingly available, uh, or it's being diverted to something else, um, but they want attention. How how can they get it appropriately? Do do they need to you know communicate for it and request it appropriately? Do they need to demonstrate some other appropriate behavior in order to access it? Um, or do they need to, you know, sometimes, you know, say, hey, but be engage in uh, the absence of that behavior for a period of time, which will then get uh, reinforced by the attention. Um, but the one thing that I'll also say, and uh, I don't know if everybody would agree with me on this, because um, this may get into some uh, special education law, is I prefer after I do my FEA not to just write up my BIP or my behavior plan. Um, because even though I may have done a great FEA and know exactly why this behavior occurs, it doesn't mean my treatment's going to work. So, because um, there's different ways to go about, you know, delivering the same, re same reinforcer you know, along different contingencies. So, I want to be able to test it out and I want to evaluate it. Under similarly controlled situations uh, for shorter periods of time and make sure it works before I go ahead and uh, write up my FEA and, or my BIP and start training people. Um, because all too often I, I, I do see that you know, someone's done their FBA um, and they've drafted their BIP and then in an IEP meeting, they review the findings of the FBA and then say, all right, and this is the plan, this is what it's gonna look like. And I want to be like, well, you did a lot of great work there, but let's talk about it next week and see if it's still working because right. you can test out any of your uh, interventions. Well, and I think that that's why communication is so important, right? Because I agree with you. I, I, you don't want to hurry things along, but then you do want to get to that point where you have this amazing plan and then it works. But in order for it to work, you've got to go through it systematically and you've got to continue to test it and continue to move with the student. You've got to continue to account for change. Um, and so that's to me where communication comes in. And, and if my listeners might start rolling their eyes when I say communication, because that's what I'm always talking about. But that's when I say to you in a meeting, okay, but tell us what to do now and tell us what strategies might work, tell us what to look for, tell us how to collaborate with you, our behavior guru, to help us help you 
help the student and we keep the student at the center of it. And, you know, that's kind of another place where a pitfall can happen. We can have this really great um, um, analysis in the FBA, a great kind of temporary idea of a plan while we continue to test things and tease things out, but nobody really knows their role from that point forward. And I think people don't view it as a process. They view it as a start and stop. Like, well, we've got to get a BIP in place. And I always say, well, before we even like, okay, even if we've just thought about planning an FBA, now we need to talk about what's going to work in the meantime. Because we, if we're thinking about the student, we don't want things to unravel for the student. That doesn't make any sense. Yep. Um, so, you know, we have to continue to collaborate. Isn't that right? It completely. Um, and so, like, I mean, two things about that. Like, one of the things that I will, well, I don't say have to do, but I do and probably should do, is communicate that with both the family and the district. So, this is the process. This is how I see it playing out. And so, once we get this done, this is the next steps we have to take before anything is finalized. Um, because, again, a lot of times it is a matter of just checking off boxes. Oh, got the FBA, got the VIP. Um, but then there's the piece of, okay, well, because it, it can be a quick process, but it can be lengthy. Then it's you know, talking about, well, what can we do? Like you said, what can we do right now? What are things we could do in the meantime? Um, you know, first and foremost is always safety uh, and you know, identifying you know, what are the strategies um, that could be implemented to maintain the safety of the student as well as the safety of the family or staff working with that student. Um, and as we start to get information, like again, let's say we, we learn that um, you know, the student does engage in these behaviors to get our attention, you know, as we're testing things out, we might say, look, my advice to you right now is gonna be, when the behavior occurs, minimize attention if you can. When behavior is not occurring, maximize it as much as you can. We're gonna formalize it soon of what it should look like, but these are some things that based on what we know, this is good practice. Um, and you know, with in a lot of cases, it's difficult to like. I'm sure you've heard the term extinction thrown out uh, left and right. Oh, we're going to use extinction. Yeah, to extinguish this behavior. It's probably one of the hardest things to do. Oh my gosh, it is. So, and I have also heard, um, and I'm not, you know, an expert in the field, but I have heard multiple experts say that it is almost, it can be dangerous to attempt planned ignoring extinction strategies without professional support. It, it definitely can be because there, I mean, again, you probably heard like the term extinction burst. Um, it's, it's not as common as, as some people uh, you know, talk about, but when it happens, it can be dangerous because you know, again, you know, picture a student who maybe engages in some self-injurious behavior and they uh, do it to, uh, to get out of work and someone says to them, you know what? Don't let them out of work, keep doing it. And then they keep engaging in self-injury and they escalate and they maybe I stop hitting myself and now I'm banging my head on the, on the counter. Um, right. That's not, I mean, obviously that's, that's dangerous and that's not helpful and doesn't move things forward. Um, and you know, in most places, extinction is, is so difficult to do, uh, especially when there's nuances of our behavior that maybe maintain the behavior. Um, so my, my recommendation is oftentimes, look, if you don't think you can do this with 100% fidelity, don't do it at all. 
because it, it's better to provide the reinforcer the attention or the escape following the behavior than to do it intermittently because not to get into the mechanics of it, but that actually can strengthen the behavior. If I only if I give yeah. them what they want every now and then, it's going to occur more. I have actually, that that is, when it was explained to me like that the first time, I thought, oh yeah, now I totally see, because then the next time the child does it, then they think, you know, if, if you're looking at it like it's on a conveyor belt or a roller coaster, the ch-chunk, part, and you're going up the hill, that, you know, you, you might be able to ignore it until the child's 75% up the hill on that roller coaster, and then that's when you say, okay, stop. Um, and then tomorrow the behavior happens again, the child knows that they get a reaction at that 75%. And so they're going to escalate up to that point way faster because they're waiting for your reaction, which then perpetuates itself. I love that analogy. I, I may steal that from you. <laughs> well, I saw it on a bell curve, but I was trying to do it with my words instead of, instead of on a bell curve. So. Yeah. So, well, I, this is so, so helpful. You know, when you and I talked to plan this podcast, I loved the way that you were able to explain the difference between correlation and causation with the consequence of um, the, the behaviors and taking that ABC data. I think that's going to be super helpful for my audience. Um, and I'm so grateful to have you as a resource. I, um, I wish that I lived closer so that we could access some of the things that are available at Milestones. Um, but thank you so much. We would love to have you back on to continue additional discussions. And I will say that I have had particularly good behavior because the garbage truck was here. I have a lab puppy who's right now eating a marker um, underneath me and Jack popped in to say hi during this and I've sustained my attention. So I, do I get some kind of reward for this? That's amazing. I'll make a praise. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for the verbal praise. Well, we will have you back. Thank you so much for joining us, David. Thank you very much for having me. It was, it was a lot of fun. <laughs>